Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 22 or Matthew 12:33 through 50. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit had gone, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and bring with, brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before I pray, uh, two quick things. Number one, I need to apologize. There was a group of like 10, 11-year-old boys over here. And uh, man, I could just smell body odor. And so I was, just, I was judging, judging them in my heart and, uh, and their parents a little bit. I'm like, come on, where's the deodorant? And then I walk over here and, and the smell followed me. So I think I forgot to put on deodorant. So I just want to ask for your forgiveness for judging you. <laughs> I'm a recovering self-righteous Pharisee, and I, uh, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Second thing, also equally as laughable, is that if you get an email from me asking for anything, uh, just disregard it. I would not ever you know, email um, you asking for restaurant gift cards or iTunes gift cards or those sorts of things. Apparently, there's a scammer that even has a picture of me in the email asking for things. So please don't uh, contribute anything to them. Just delete it. Or if you're like Taylor Routon, you can toy with them for like a 27 email thread and see where it gets you. Let's pray. Father, we're here and we're gathered because of the reality that we just saying about the fact that because of the blood of Jesus, sin's curse has lost its grip on us. No guilt in life. 
No fear in death. For we are yours and you are ours. We're bought with the precious blood of Christ. Father, you worked your will. Son, you paid our debt. Spirit, you made us see. Father, we come asking on behalf of others this morning, we pray for our governor, Abbott, that you would be with him, that you would give him wisdom and skill and discernment to fulfill the job that you've given him for this time. Pray that he would lean into you, that you would grant him wisdom and you would provide wise men and women around him. Father, we pray for the recent missions conference, the cross conference, and the 5,500 students that went, and especially our students that went, that you would be continually at work in their lives and that you would mobilize them, that you would strengthen local churches here and abroad, and ultimately, as a result, be part of the means by which all the nations are reached. Father, we give you praise for new life. Yet again, we're so, so grateful and happy about how abundant and fruitful this church has been. And we're so thankful for the Blairs and their new baby boy, Jensen. We pray that you would be with them. Thank you for a healthy baby and a healthy mama. Pray for Brian as he's quarantined with COVID, that you would be with him, that he would get better quickly and uh, that he'd be able to return home. Thank you that his symptoms are mild, but we do pray for uh, Hillary to endure uh, while he's away and that you would just bless them. We pray for little Jensen, that he would be trained in the knowledge and fear of you, that he would grow up loving you, that he would grow up not really knowing a time where Jesus wasn't his king. And Father, as we turn to your word, would you grant ears to hear and eyes to see the supremacy of your son, Jesus? Grant eyes to see the brevity of this present evil age, the importance of the local church. We pray through this through King Jesus, your son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You know, living where we live has lots of pros, but living in the Bible Belt is also a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous because there's so much, even in not speaking of our city, there's so much that, that has sort of a Christian garb about it. Things can look good on the outside. Things can look squeaky clean, moral, spiritual even, which makes it so dangerous that we may not have the real thing. Over 50 years ago, Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he pastored in Philadelphia. He speculated that if Satan took over Philly, this is what it would look like. If Satan took over Philly, all the bars would be closed. Closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. As the Puritan Thomas Watson put it, the devil baits his hook with religion. There's a very real danger that we be moral people, spiritual people, but be Christless people. I mean, just think about it. Who were the people that Jesus was against and who were against Jesus in the gospel? We've seen it almost every week here in the gospel of Matthew. 
It was the religious people. It was the religious leaders. It was the Bible Belt people. That's why it's so important for us not just to think of two types of people. We tend to do that, and there's certainly biblical precedents. Think of Psalm 1. There's the righteous and the wicked. But I think it's really important for us, biblically, but also contextually with where we live, to think of three types of people. It's not just the righteous and the wicked. It's the righteous, the wicked, and the Christless religious type of people. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's been a little while. I can't even remember when we were there, but Matthew 5, 6, and 7 there's these two ways that Jesus sets up, especially in chapter 7 as he's ending his sermon and he lays out the, the good tree and the bad tree, kind of like our passage this morning. He lays out the broad way and the narrow way. He lays out the true prophet and the false prophet. And I think we tend to read that and think, well, it's, it's the unbelievers, it's the pagans, and it's the disciples. Well, that's actually not what's going on there because who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to Jewish people. So the two ways are not... Christians and pagans, in fact, I would say that in the Sermon on the Mount, the pagans, the unbelievers, they're not even on the radar. It's two ways that Jesus is talking about it. It's basically the religious without Christ and the disciples. In fact, let me just flip back. You can flip with me if you want. If you've got your Bible open to Matthew 6, remember who he's most critical right there in the heart of the sermon. What does he say in Matthew chapter 6? Verse 1, who is he after? Is it the pagans? Is it the outright unreligious? No. His warning here in chapter 6, verse 1 is beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, these are people that pray, but you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. They're, they're religious, they're moral, they're hypocrites, but they're not unbelievers and pagans here in terms of the categories. He does it again in verse 16. When you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So notice there's three ways to live. Man, Abilene, Texas needs to hear this. There is the unbeliever way. I've yet to meet one in Abilene, Texas. Then there's the religious way. But their motive is not the glory of God. It's themselves. They're cleaning up their act for themselves. And then there's the disciples way, which we will see Yet again, this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 12. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 767, where we're going to see yet more confrontations with the Pharisees and their false religion. So let's consider together four marks of true religion. First, true religion is inside out. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus now goes to the root issue. They are at root wicked. Radically, that word radix, from the root, sinful. They're bad trees, and so they're producing bad fruit. And Jesus has already taught on this. In fact, flip with me. 
I mentioned it, but let's read it. Chapter 7, verse 16. This is hugely important for Jesus. Therefore, it should be to us. Chapter 7, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, a, a person's true nature is seen in how they act. Nature determines action, just as the taste of the water reveals the state of the spring. And before we became Christians, apart from Christ, we didn't sin and then become sinners. We are sinners, and so we sin. The type of tree determines the type of fruit. And Jesus says our heart determines what even comes out of our mouths. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart determines what you say. The lips speak what the heart is full of. I wonder if you've ever said anything really harmful to someone you love to hurt them. Only me. I'm glad I'm in the company of such holier-than-thous Pharisees. You say those words, and you just, want to, you just want to grab them back, right? And often our tendency is to say, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean it. That's actually contrary to what Jesus teaches here. Jesus teaches that whatever comes out of our mouth was in our heart. We did mean it. And so we need to own that. Part of walking in the spirit is confessing and owning our sin and confessing and calling a spade a spade. So we say, you know what? I am so sorry. I said those words with the intent to hurt you. I'm so sorry. I am sinful. I need help. I need forgiveness from God. I need forgiveness from you. Will you forgive me for such hateful speech? Came out of my heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is so important. Jesus is going to hit it again. Flip, flip ahead just a few chapters to Matthew 15, verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So remember, God is after our hearts. Remember what the heart is in the Bible. The heart is the control center of the human person. It includes the mind, the will, and emotions. It's our person as a whole. Notice how, and back to chapter 12, how Jesus just moves from the heart to treasure there in verse 34. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks at the end of verse 34. And then look what he says in verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure. See, our heart is our treasure and our treasure is our heart. Good hearts produce good, evil produces evil. And so what do these people need? What do all people need? We need new hearts. We need to become new trees. We don't merely need, you know, just a little plastic surgery, facelift. We need heart replacement surgery. But how do we do that? We can't. Left to ourselves, we can't. We can't give ourselves new heart. And so this is why we saying what we sing, grace and grace alone, the Spirit 
awakened our sleepy soul. We sing thy power and thine alone can change the leopard's spots and melt the heart of stone. We can't do it. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then can you do good who are accustomed to evil? No, thou must save and thou alone. They need to be converted. They need to be born again. They need to be made new. And keep in mind, these are the religious leaders. These are the rule keepers. These are the ones who look clean on the outside. Let me read to you how Jesus is going to rebuke them later on in chapter 23, verse 25. He says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and all lawlessness. See, they kept the rules on the outside. They looked moralistic, but were bad trees inside. Which goes to show you again the danger of Bible Belt Christianity. Even rigid external religion will not save. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you will not see the kingdom unless you're born again. We need new birth. We need heart change. That's why in chapter 5, verse 20, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed, far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What's he saying? Is he saying we need to be more externally religious and rigid? No, he's saying we need heart righteousness. What Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 promised. Saying we need heart righteousness, not just external new hearts, regeneration. And friends, that's what happens when we become Christians. And notice the importance that Jesus gives to our words. Wicked words reveal that they are bad trees. Hugely important. On judgment day, we'll give an account for every careless word we've spoken. Words matter. We all know that. You know, we try to encourage kids to have thick skin, so we'll teach them to sing on the playground. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That song is full of lies, and we all know it. There are words that can pierce long after the lips that uttered them have been buried in the ground. So followers of Jesus are to be careful. We weigh our words. Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James 3, probably the most notable passage on the importance of the tongue. James 3, verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil 
full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Psalm 141, 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. True gospel Christianity, true religion is inside out. Second, true religion sees Jesus for who he is. Look back at Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, Jesus last week kind of did a really good job with a hard passage he had just put them in their place with that strong warning there in chapter 12, 22 and following. So you might think they would reconsider their stance a little bit, but instead they double down. They remain unmoved in their unbelief rather than trusting. They ask for yet another sign, but they had seen plenty of signs. What more could they possibly want? I mean, what have we seen so far, just so far in this gospel? Just read just some of them that we read in chapter 11, verse 4. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. See, they wanted something they could use against Jesus. Here we see really the amazing power of unbelief. There was more than enough evidence, but they really didn't want more evidence. Evidence is not the issue. They don't want to be convinced. Romans 1 is really helpful here. Speaks of who we were outside of Christ and how we approached our knowledge of God. It says this, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Look around. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. All people, every single person knows God. God's made that plain. But rather than submit to his lordship and submit to his truth, what do we do outside of Christ? We seek to suppress it. Such is the nature of bad trees. Such is the nature of unbelief. Look at verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Hard words. Earlier, Jesus called them a brood of vipers, and now he calls them evil and adulterous. Adulterous here, of course, is referring to spiritual adultery. They betrayed their God. They've broken the covenant, though he was their husband. They will receive no sign except for the sign of Jonah, which is resurrection from the dead. Jonah's rescue was a sign to Nineveh that his message was true. So will Jesus be. God authorizes the messenger by deliverance from death. And just for the record, Jesus believed in the historicity of Jonah. And so your liberal, theologically liberal professors who make fun of such things are actually pouring contempt on the Son of God himself when they dismiss the historicity of Jonah. So much so that he warns that the men of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn unbelievers at the judgment. He clearly takes Jonah literally. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. As one author put it, And yet we are to suppose him to say that an imaginary person who at the imaginary preaching of an imaginary prophet repented in imagination shall rise up in that day and condemn the actual impenitence of those, his actual hearers? No, friends. So much scholarship attacks the integrity of the Old Testament. So much of it is. There's this view called the documentary hypothesis. It's alive and well in Abilene, Texas. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Isaiah was written by two or three other different men on and on. The biblical timeline was just made up. If they're right, Jesus was monumentally mistaken. On all this, I submit that Jesus Christ knew Jewish history better than German theological liberals whose ideas are all the rage in colleges that don't take the Bible seriously. Jesus always treats biblical history as a record of facts. And so I submit that as followers of Christ, we follow Christ. Let's adopt his view of the scriptures. Do you remember that? Flip back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. What is Jesus' view of the scriptures? He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. There's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. No one has a higher view of the word of God than the son of God. He upholds it, he fulfills it, he endorses the whole of it. Jesus said, John 10, scripture cannot be broken. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, they're worse than the Ninevites, and indeed, they're going to be condemned by the Ninevites on judgment day. And remember, the Ninevites were the enemies of Israel. This is really offensive teaching. It's one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go, right? And Jesus has done this before. He has compared Israel to pagan cities. He did it in chapter 11, verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, these Jewish towns. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in these pagan towns, Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'd be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's dangerous to be religious. They'd seen so much and yet they remained in their unbelief. And what's the key difference between Jerusalem, these Jewish cities, and these other places? What's the key difference? Faith and repentance. Turning to Christ, turning from sin. Note well, it is not their moral superiority. These places were a moral shipwreck. The difference is that one group sees Jesus for who he is. And the other is offended by him. Jerusalem will dismiss Jesus as demonic, but these pagan cities see Jesus for who he is. He's greater than the temple. Chapter 12, verse 6. Something greater than the temple is here. He's greater. He's the greater Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He brings rest. He's greater than Jonah. He's greater than King Solomon. Jesus is the true prophet, the priest, and king. He speaks the truth of God for our good. He makes atonement for sinners and intercedes as great high priest, and his kingly rule is good and wise. Recognizes Jesus for who he is. True religion is characterized, thirdly, by repentance. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. It's another warning. We've seen this phrase, this generation, many times. We'll see it more. It will culminate in chapter 3. They were hard-hearted. They rejected their Messiah. They had seen Jesus. They had heard his teaching and yet remained in their sin. They had heard and seen their Messiah but did not repent. And I think that's what Jesus seems to mean here. Demons were associated with watery regions. They were apparently not comfortable in a desert but in a human host. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that once a person's cleaned out, the void must be filled by something, lest they end up worse than they were before. They need to be filled by the Spirit of God. Rather than repenting after being exposed to the truth, what do they do? They return back to their sin and unbelief. Peter helps us a little bit in chapter 2, 2 Peter 2. He says, For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord, Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. True religion makes the turn. Let's go halfway. True religion turned from sin to God. That's what repentance means. It's a turn from self and a return to God as the center of all of life. Repentance is total surrender to Christ. It's this continuing radical reorienting of our lives towards Jesus. It's putting him at the center, turning from sin and self and to God and godliness. We remove self from the throne, put Jesus in its place. That's what repentance is in Scripture. 
Fourth, true religion is church-centered. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yet more jolting words from Jesus. He's here teaching and his family sends someone for him. By the way, it's worth noting that Mary had other kids. Scripture doesn't teach her perpetual virginity. And so his family sends for him. And here's what he says. Who's that? (laughs) Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked at his disciples and said, these, these are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. See, Jesus radically redefines family for his people. Again, he's not, he's going to do it multiple times. We've already seen it in chapter 10, verse 34. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, we must reestablish our priorities. And to follow Jesus means to redefine family. There's a solemn warning here for any who would mock Christians, which is increasingly becoming the norm, isn't it? They don't realize what they're doing. They're mocking the very family of Jesus, the near relatives of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To mock Christians is to mock the Lord Jesus Christ. So we got to come to see that first and foremost, our family is the blood-bought body of Christ, the local church. The people around you right now, this first and foremost is our family. Let's think for a moment on how families operate. In Abilene especially, we've got to say this, first and foremost, they don't bail at the very first sign of difficulty. And they don't leave over petty disagreements. You just don't treat family that way, do you? Sometimes you might want to, but you can't. They work through things. Now, there are times to leave a church. But when you have an issue, here's some tips. First, just pray about it. Take it to the Lord, what's going on. If it's a biblical issue, study the issue. Go to Scripture, see what's going on, and try to, try to triage a little bit. Is this a first-order issue? There are some churches that go astray on first-order issues, and people need to leave them. Or is this a second or a third, something that maybe we need to learn to agree to disagree about? Families are going to have that. Pray about it, study the issue. Meet with the leadership early on. If you ever got an issue here, now I'm speaking kind of to our members, really to any of you though, if you're not here or land somewhere else and move away, go to the leadership early and often about an issue and help them know about it. They can pray with you, maybe bring some clarity. One of the worst things, one of the worst ways to leave a church is to make up your mind and then tell the leadership. It's not how family works. Examine your motives. What's going on? Is it conflict? Is it disappointment? Is it doctrine? 
And all of us ought to pursue peace at all costs. So do everything we can to reconcile any broken relationships. And if it ends up being the case that you do need to leave, leave well. This, the church, whatever church it is you're leaving, it's the blood-bought body of Jesus. So refuse to slander, to gossip, or vent. That just causes division. And God hates division in his church. Look up Titus 3, 9 and 10. Instead, seek to be a blessing. Even as you lead, seek to be a blessing to the congregation. Pray for their blessing. But families work through conflict. Families work at communicating well. How else do families operate? There's a scholar named Joseph Hellerman, and he spent most of his life working on the concept of family, not necessarily in the Bible, not what the Bible teaches about the family, but what family life was like in first century Greco-Roman culture. Really helpful stuff. He says this. He writes this. I think we've got a quote. It's a little bit long. The world in which Jesus and his followers lived was a distinctly strong group culture in which the health of the group, not the needs of the individual, received first priority. And the most important group for persons in the ancient world was the family. It's hardly accidental that the New Testament writers chose the concept of family as the central social metaphor to describe the kind of interpersonal relationships that were to characterize those early Christian communities. So in that world, family was first, group was first. In our world, who's first? The individual. Very different. But this means that Jesus' teaching is all the more countercultural in his day as he, in a sense, relativized his blood family. He draws, Hellerman draws three principles. Number one, in that world, the world of the New Testament, the group took priority over the, the individual. Number two, in the world of the New Testament, a person's most important group was his blood family. Number three, in the New Testament world, and this was striking, the closest family bond, again, not the Bible, the culture of that day, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage, but the bond of siblings. Fascinating. And so what Jesus says here is all the more significant. Who are my mother and brother and sisters? It's the disciples. It's those who do the will of the Father. Our family is no longer primarily blood, but faith in Jesus. And our siblings are our closest bonds. No wonder that the main way God speaks of his church in the New Testament is siblings. You know that? Just think about the word brothers, brothers. We read it four times in James 3. Brothers, brothers. The word is siblings, brothers and sisters. Those from the same womb. Those who've been born again and have God as their father. Jesus demands a radical change of loyalties. Hellerman goes on to write, the first followers of Jesus conceived of loyalty to God primarily in terms of loyalty to God's group. To be committed to God was to be committed to his family. This, friends, is why we push local church membership every other week. We believe it is vitally important for your walk with Christ. So if you're not a member here, we'd love to invite you to our next membership class. It's January 29th, Saturday morning. You can register on our website. If you're a member, come tonight at 5. We've got family business to work through. Jesus has given us a job. He's given you, the congregation, the keys of the kingdom. You can't do your job if you don't show up at the office. So Hellerman, finally, Hellerman shows there are four themes emerge from all this, this research that he's done. Number one, 
affective solidarity. What does that mean? It means there is an emotional bond with one another. And if it's not there, pray that it would get there. Number two, there's family unity. There is interpersonal harmony and absence of discord among one another. We fight and pray and work to maintain unity. Number three, there's material solidarity. There is a sharing of resources within the family. Number four, there's family loyalty. There is undivided commitment to the family. Man, as I read this, I just think how different is modern American Christianity, especially in the Bible Belt. It's driven by consumerism. Too many Christians come to a church and they're thinking, what can I get out of this? My needs, me, myself, and I. The church is a a vendor of religious goods and I'm here to get my needs met. One of my favorites is, I'm being sarcastic, it's the one I loathe. I didn't really like the worship experience. You'll never find us unless on accident speaking of the worship experience. But we've got it fundamentally flipped here in America as if worship is about catering to you. We come to worship him. (laughs) We come here for God and to honor him. Well, we should be contributors, not just consumers. The Christian life is the church life. These disciples of Jesus are our first family. That's what the church is. It's not a building. It's not an institutional organization with a budget. It's a living organism on mission together. It's a family. Zooming out here, what do these verses tell us about Jesus? Well, that he teaches as one with authority. That he wants wholehearted devotion. That he trusts the Bible. That he said he would rise from the dead, and he did. And that he redefines family around him. What do we learn about us from these verses? Well, that we must be changed from the inside out. And God must do it. We must be born again. If you don't know Jesus, you're here. And you realize, you know what? I'm getting nowhere in this self-reformation project. You ought to just give up now and come to Christ. If you have questions, we'd love to talk about what it means to be a Christian. What else do we learn about ourselves? We learn that our words matter. We learn that our lives should consist of repentance. Our whole Christian life, we are repenting our way forward to glory. We learn that we must prioritize our faith family, the local church, over all other relationships. This, friends, is true religion. Change from the inside out, seeing Christ as all, repentance, commitment to his body, the church. May God give us grace to this end for our joy and his glory. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for your word. Thankful that you haven't left us to ourselves. We're thankful that you speak directly to us. I pray for those who are here that may think they're born again, but they're not. They're just externally externally religious. I pray that you, by your spirit, would make them new. Move their sleeping spirit to awaken by your grace and grace alone. Pray for those whom we know that would claim to be Christians and maybe are tangentially related to a church even, that you would give us words of wisdom to speak to them. Give us a burden for false converts, those who 
are externally religious to a degree, but don't seem to have fruit. They don't know you. Give us wisdom and skill, but even boldness to be able to speak the truth and love to our friends and family that are in such a state. And God, we pray that we would be those characterized by repentance, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that he's where wisdom is found. He's where your presence is found. He's where your truth is found. And that we would orient our lives around him. We would displace ourselves from the center and put Christ there. God, I pray for our affection for one another here in this local church, that you would increase it, that we would care deeply about one another and helping one another and meeting needs and ultimately helping one another follow you, helping one another follow you and end well. So would you do that? Would you bless the rest of our morning, bless our meeting tonight? Thank you for adding to our family and pray that you continue to strengthen us by your grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.